Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be going through fractures and you can find written notes on this topic at zerodefinals.com slash fractures or in the orthopedic section of the Zero to Finals surgery book. So let's get straight into it. Let's start by talking about the types of fracture. A compound fracture is where the skin is broken and the broken bone is exposed to the air. The broken bone can puncture through the skin in a compound fracture. A stable fracture refers to when the sections of bone remain in alignment at the fracture site. A pathological fracture refers to when a bone breaks due to an abnormality within the bone and we'll talk in more detail about pathological fractures shortly. There are certain terms used to describe the way that a bone has fractured. A transverse fracture is when the bone breaks straight across. An oblique fracture is when the bone breaks at an angle. A spiral fracture is when the bone breaks in a spiral shape. A segmental fracture is when there's two breaks, which means a segment of bone is separated at the fracture site. A comminuted fracture is when the bone breaks into multiple fragments. Compression fractures often affect the vertebrae in the spine, where the vertebrae is squashed. A green stick fracture is when only one side of the bone has a fracture and the other side remains intact, so there isn't a fracture that goes fully through the bone. A buckle or torus fracture is when both sides of the bone on either side of the fracture compress into each other. And finally, a Salter-Harris fracture or a growth plate fracture is a fracture that affects the growth plates. Green stick and buckle fractures typically occur in children rather than adults. Salter-Harris fractures only occur in children as adults do not have growth plates. Let's talk about wrist fractures. A Colley's fracture refers to a transverse fracture of the distal radius near the wrist, causing the distal portion of the radius to displace posteriorly, or in an upwards direction. And this gives the wrist an appearance of a dinner fork, and is sometimes referred to as a dinner fork deformity. This is usually the result of a fall onto an outstretched hand, or a foosh. Another type of fracture that can be caused by a foosh or a fall onto an outstretched hand is a scaphoid fracture. The scaphoid is one of the carpal bones and is located at the base of the thumb. A key sign of a scaphoid fracture is tenderness in the anatomical snuff box. The anatomical snuff box is the groove between the tendons that appears when you extend the thumb. It's worth noting that the scaphoid has a retrograde blood supply with blood vessels supplying the bone from only one direction. This means a fracture of the scaphoid can cut off the blood supply, resulting in avascular necrosis and non-union of the bone. A tom tip for you, some key bones have vulnerable blood supplies where a fracture can lead to avascular necrosis, impaired healing and non-union. These bones are worth remembering, and they are the scaphoid bone in the hand, the femoral head in the hip, the humeral head in the shoulder, and the talus, navicular, and fifth metatarsal in the foot. Next, let's talk about ankle fractures. Ankle fractures involve the lateral malleolus of the distal fibula or the medial malleolus of the distal tibia. 
The Weber classification can be used to describe fractures of the lateral malleolus affecting the distal fibula. The fracture is described in relation to the distal syndesmosis, which is the fibrous joint between the tibia and the fibula. This tibiofibular syndesmosis is very important for stability and function of the ankle joint. If a fracture disrupts the syndesmosis, surgery is more likely to be required in order to regain good stability and function of the joint. The Weber classification defines fractures of the lateral malleolus as type A below the ankle joint which will leave the syndesmosis intact, type B at the level of the ankle joint where the syndesmosis will be intact or partially torn, and type C which is above the ankle joint where the syndesmosis will be disrupted. Next let's talk about pelvic ring fractures. The pelvis forms a ring. This means that when one part of the pelvic ring fractures, another part will also fracture, and you can think of this like a polo mint breaking in half. Pelvic fractures often lead to significant intra-abdominal bleeding, and this can either be due to vascular injury or bleeding from the cancellous bone of the pelvis. This can lead to shock and death, so emergency resuscitation and trauma management is required. Next let's talk about pathological fractures. Pathological fractures occur due to underlying disease of the bone, such as a tumour, osteoporosis or Paget's disease of the bone. They may occur with minor trauma or even spontaneously without any history of trauma. Common sites are the femur and the vertebral bodies in the spine. The main cancers that metastasize to bone and you can remember these with the mnemonic portable, are PO for prostate, R for renal, TA for thyroid, B for breast, and LE for lung. So those are prostate, renal, thyroid, breast, and lung. Next let's talk about fragility fractures. Fragility fractures occur due to weakness in the bone, usually due to osteoporosis. They can often occur without the appropriate trauma that's usually required in order to break a bone. For example, a patient may present with a fractured femur after a minor fall. A patient's risk of a fragility fracture over the next 10 years can be predicted using the FRAX tool, spelt F-R-A-X. Bone mineral density can be measured using a DEXA scan, spelt D-E-X-A. The World Health Organization criteria for osteopenia and osteoporosis are based on the T-score at the hip, which is an assessment of bone mineral density. A T-score of more than minus 1 is normal. A T-score of minus 1 to minus 2 is classed as osteopenia. A T-score of less than minus 2.5 is classed as osteoporosis and a T-score of less than minus 2.5 plus a fracture is classed as severe osteoporosis. The NOG guidelines, spelt N-O-G-G, can be used to guide the medical treatments that are appropriate for an individual based on their FRAX score. The first-line medical treatments for reducing the risk of fragility fractures are calcium and vitamin D supplementation and bisphosphonates, for example, allandronic acid.
Bisphosphonates work by interfering with osteoclasts and reducing their activity, preventing the reabsorption of bone. There are a few key side effects to remember. Reflux and esophageal erosions can occur with oral bisphosphonates. Oral bisphosphonates are taken on an empty stomach while sitting upright for 30 minutes before moving or eating in order to prevent these complications. They can also cause atypical fractures, for example atypical femoral fractures. They can result in osteonecrosis of the jaw or osteonecrosis of the external auditory canal. Denosumab is a monoclonal antibody that works by blocking the activity of osteoclasts. It's an alternative to bisphosphonates where they're contraindicated, not tolerated or not effective. Next let's talk about imaging. X-rays are the initial imaging investigation when a bone fracture is suspected. Two views, meaning two x-rays taken from different angles, are always required as a single view may miss a fracture. CT scans give a more detailed view of the bones when x-rays are inconclusive or further information is required. Let's talk about the principles of fracture management. There are two principles, mechanical alignment and relative stability. The first principle is to achieve mechanical alignment where the bones of the fracture are lining up in the correct way and this can be done by closed reduction via manipulation of the limb or open reduction via surgery. The second principle is to provide relative stability for some time in order to allow the fracture to heal. This can be done by fixing the bone in the correct position while it heals and there are various ways in order to fix the bone in position. It can be done with external casts, for example a plaster cast, K-wires, intramedullary wires, intramedullary nails, screws or plates and screws. Let's talk about general management. Patients presenting to A&E will be investigated with x-rays in order to establish the diagnosis. Patients with fractures require appropriate pain management. Straightforward fractures may be managed by A&E, for example a Collie's fracture in a young adult. They may require closed reduction if the bones are out of alignment. A plaster cast can be applied and the patient can be discharged with a follow-up appointment in the fracture clinic. Complex fractures or those requiring surgery, for example a hip fracture, are referred to the on-call trauma and orthopaedics team. They're admitted and made nil by mouth if they require an operation. Their case is discussed at the trauma meeting the following day, which typically starts at 7.45, then seen on the morning ward round. A plan will be made for further management at this stage. Let's talk about the complications. The complications of fractures will depend on the location and the nature of the fracture. Possible early complications include damage to local structures, for example damage to tendons, muscles, arteries, nerves, skin or lung. Hemorrhage or bleeding from the bone or from damaged arteries, which can lead to shock and potentially death. Compartment syndrome. Fat embolism, which we'll talk about shortly or venous thromboembolism, which are DVTs or PEs due to immobility.
Possible long-term complications of fractures include delayed union, which is slow healing of the fracture, malunion, which is misaligned healing, non-union, which is failure of the bones to heal, avascular necrosis, which is death of the bone due to inadequate blood supply, infection, an infection of the bone is osteomyelitis, joint instability after the fracture heals, joint stiffness, contractures, which is where there's tightening of the soft tissues, arthritis, chronic pain, and complex regional pain syndrome. Finally, let's talk about fat embolism. Fat embolism can occur following the fracture of long bones, for example, the femur. Globules of fat are released into the circulation following the fracture. These fat globules may come from the bone marrow. These globules become lodged in blood vessels, for example, the pulmonary arteries, and they cause blood flow obstruction. Fat embolization can also cause a systemic inflammatory response, resulting in fat embolism syndrome. A fat embolism typically presents around 24 to 72 hours after the fracture. GERD's criteria, spelt G-U-R-D, can be used for the diagnosis. GERD's major criteria are respiratory distress, a petechial rash, and cerebral involvement. There is a long list of GERD's minor criteria, including jaundice or a raised bilirubin, thrombocytopenia or a low platelet count, fever, and tachycardia. Operating early to fix the fracture reduces the risk of fat embolism syndrome. A fat embolism can lead to multiple organ failure. Management is supportive while the condition improves, but the mortality rate is around 10%. So thanks for listening to this episode on bone fractures. As always, a big thank you to Harry for perfectly editing the podcast, and I hope you join us for the next episode where we'll talk about hip fractures.